Good morning. Good morning. You guys doing well? Yeah. Good to have you with us. Um, man, that last song rocked, huh? Yeah. That was a good song. <laughs> that was a good song. In fact, all those songs were good. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians. We're at chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. This is our freedom teaching series for freedom. Christ has set us free as a subtitle. Freedom of the gospel is what we're talking about this morning. Take a look at your sermon notes there, the intro. If salvation is a gift from God, what are we talking about salvation? What is that about? That's about uh, not just going to heaven, but it's having a little slice of heaven on earth because we have intimacy in all with the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And if that's a gift from God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, then what incentive do I have to live a holy life? That's oftentimes the question I've been asked. If you can't earn your salvation by your behavior, if you can't earn your salvation by your behavior and can't unearn it, which is true, so you can't earn it and therefore you can't unearn your salvation by your behavior, then what would motivate you to obey? Because I've had people ask me, well, hey, you know, God forgives us, so I'll just kind of go out and live as I please, and then I'll come back and he'll forgive me, because that's what he does. Is that a little crazy or what? It really is, if you understand the the gospel and understand the freedom that we have in, in Christ, why in the world would you do that? That's crazy. That's asinine. That doesn't make any sense. You're going to go out and live however you please? He set you free. He set you free from that so that you could experience more of him because only he can satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. And so we've got there on the notes, it is the freedom of the gospel that gives us life-changing incentive and motivation to live a life wholly devoted to Christ. That's what we're gonna talk about today. We've got a great text. Every weekend's a great text, isn't it? Anytime (laughs) Anytime we're studying God's word, it's all good. It's all very good. This is God's holy word. But before we read it and we unpack these notes, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Once again, let's go before the throne of grace. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today. The music, the songs we just sang, oh my goodness, uh, what a wonderful expression of our love for you, your love for us, the freedom that we have in you. And uh, God, we thank you for the freedom of the gospel, that nothing changes a human heart, heals a wounded soul, turns hatred into love, brings forgiveness and reconciliation, not only with you, Father, but with one another, like the gospel. So we pray this morning, through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that the beauty and glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us would captivate our hearts and set us free, filling us with an indescribable and indestructible joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, take a look at this text here, starting at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the big theme, actually subtitle of this whole series, For Freedom Christ Has Set Us Free. Notice what he says immediately right after that. He says, stand firm. It's a military term. He says, stand firm. Therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Isn't that interesting? Why would he say that? Because uh, you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your freedom. And uh, that's why he said that. And in fact, the rest of this text is that he's going to unpack that for us and show us two different ways that we lose our freedom. One is through legalism. The other one is through license. One is uh, through religion. And the other one would be through 
irreligion. And so let me continue reading verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And when he's saying circumcision, he's talking about religion. He's, he's really using that as kind of a, as a picture because remember, once again, these false teachers had infiltrated uh, these churches that Paul had planted there in this area called Galatia. And they were teaching something that was contrary to what Paul had been teaching and contrary to the gospel. This is what they were teaching. They were teaching, believe, obey, and you're saved. And there's a lot of people that believe that here in America today. They don't understand the gospel. And the gospel actually says, no, believe, you're saved, and you'll obey. Major difference between the two. And that's why when he says circumcision, he's saying they were teaching Believe, obey. You got to add something. It's Jesus plus something else, and then you're saved. And, and Paul was saying, no, no, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything, everything you'll ever need. And uh, verse 3, I testify. Oh, in fact, he says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. So if you think you can earn your right standing with God, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So you, you, you think you can earn your right standing with God? Well, guess what? You've already blown that, and you've got to keep the whole law. If you want to somehow win favor with God and make it to heaven is what he's saying. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ. That's pretty serious. You're severed from Christ... You who would be justified, justified is a word that we've talked about before, just as if you've never sinned, you stand before God just as if you've never sinned or just as if you lived the perfect life that Jesus lived and died the death that he died, just as, just as if that was true about you. <clears throat> and he says, justified by the law, you who would be justified by the law, but he's saying that you're trying to do this through works, but there's a justification that we have through Christ Jesus by grace through faith in him. But he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's a sweet verse there. We're going to come back and unpack that one along with verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither religion or irreligion, neither moral conformity or self-discovery. Those are the kind of the two ways that we try to uh, be our own God. And so he's saying, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross <clears throat> has been removed. Stop there just for a minute before you read on. Um, the, the offense of the cross, yeah, the, the, the cross is very offensive because the cross tells us that you and I were so sinful, Jesus had to die. It was indispensable. There was no other way that we could have a right relationship with God. There's an offensiveness to the cross. Now, most Americans believe that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. If you were to ask them, why are you going to go to heaven? They would say, what? Anybody? They'd say, because I'm basically a good person. The Bible would say, no, no, you're not. I mean, that's not a message that's real popular 
And so there's, there's a lot of American pastors and churches that have said, well, that's not very popular, so let's teach something that's more popular. You're really a good person. You really are. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, as we will see in our, our, in our notes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are desperate for Jesus. And he's taken care of that for us completely. <clears throat> so, now, now do you think that Paul is pretty upset here about this? You think that this is pretty serious matter? Well, if you don't, let me read to you verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Huh? Exclamation mark. So he's talking circumcision, kind of play on words. I just wish they would cut it completely off. What do you say about that? Ah. I would say that he's pretty upset, and this is pretty serious. And uh, he's saying, these guys are leading you astray. These are false teachers. And he's taking a pretty serious stand. And uh, he's not too PC here, is he? No, no such thing as PC in the Bible. There's no, no political correctness here. And he goes on, verse 13, these are great verses. So he's kind of working on the religion side here. This is the, this yoke of slavery. By the way, let me just say, yoke of slavery, when he said that in the first verse, do not submit again to this yoke of slavery. How many have ever seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? Cool Hand Luke? Okay, it's a classic. So not everybody has, but the, maybe, maybe you'd be more familiar with this. Chain Gang, you know what I'm talking about? Chain Gang. How many have ever seen the Chain Gang? Maybe from uh, Perryville or some of the prisons and they're out there and they've got a guy with a shotgun standing guard and they're out there and some of them are chained up depending on how, uh, how bad they might be if they try to get away or whatever. Well, that's a little bit of the bondage that he's talking about here is that we, we get chained to things such as religion and now he moves on from religion to irreligion thinking that we can kind of live however we want to live. And that's how our, our world would define freedom. Oh, it's just I can live however I want to live. And he's saying, mm, no, that's not true. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So he's just saying, that's not freedom. Doing whatever you want to do. And he goes on, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So he's kind of telling us, if, we're not, if we think we can do whatever we want to do, well, the result will be that we're going to bite and devour one another. We're going to bring destruction upon our own lives and in our relationships. And so this is God's word to us this morning. Great word. Let's unpack it. So three questions we're looking at. What is freedom? Can we lose or abuse our freedom? And how does freedom change everything? Man, now, now if you get this, especially as we move to the last part of this, uh, this is... Uh, perhaps uh, the most uh, stunning truth I came across a number of years ago that just kind of knocked me sideways. It's, it just brought such freedom to my life. And so as we kind of walk through this, you want to certainly take good notes and listen up. But what is freedom? Back to verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom, he says, for freedom, that's the noun. Christ has set us free, that's the verb. So everything about the Christian life is freedom. Freedom is both the means and the end of the Christian life. The end, for freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the means. He set us free so that we can live a free life. That's what it's saying. 
He set us free so that you can experience freedom unlike you've ever experienced before. Jesus' whole mission was an operation of liberation. Now, now I... I have a lot of discussions with a lot of people that are both Christian and non-Christian, and I get it on both, from both categories, both Christian and non-Christian. They say, they, they almost kind of, sometimes people will look at the Christian life as if God is a restrictor. That, yeah, you know, I'm going to have my fun, and then I'll come back to God and begin to live my life for Him. <laughs> You're clueless, okay? Because uh, He's not a restrictor. He is a liberator. He is a liberator. And the more you follow him and the more you make him at the center of your life, the more you're going to be free because that's the essence of the Christian life. Unbelievable freedom. So if you get that idea that somehow, you know, you're going to find it better apart from him, what do you think, God's dumb or something? I mean, you, you actually think you're smarter than God and you think that somehow he's holding out on you, he doesn't love you. See, and that's the, that's the lie, that's the deception that often gets in our heart. That's why we take a, an alternate path away from God, contrary to what he teaches and that's why he's saying this, for freedom Christ has set us free. God is not a restrictor, he's a liberator. In fact, this is the summary of the whole book. For freedom Christ has set us free. And what's fascinating about this is that in Greek, this refers to a single past action that is now completed. It's done. He has set us free. Now he's saying, live in the freedom that I give to you. So we can't lose our salvation, but we can lose our freedom. And the freedom of, uh, that he's giving us here is, is pretty amazing. I was trying to think of some kind of pictures. And here's, here's kind of my, my pictures, my word pictures, so to speak, of what this freedom entails. Um, inmates at Perryville Prison with Christ are more free than those outside those prison walls without Christ. I'm convinced of that. I know a few that are in prison that know Jesus. And they have a greater freedom than those that are outside those prison walls without Christ. Here's another kind of analogy. If you are in a bad marriage or a bad job or a bad set of circumstances but have Christ, you are more free than those who have a great marriage and a great job and a great set of circumstances without Christ. So it's not predicated upon your circumstances. Here's another way I was thinking about it. This is a little bit heavier kind of... It, you, you, are, you would be better off to live in a third world oppressive country with Christ than living in America without Christ. Whoa. If you doubt that, you don't understand the freedom that he offers us. It's pretty heavy. Now, here's the first uh, fill in the blank on your notes because oftentimes, as I've already stated, is that people think that when we talk about freedom, it's doing whatever you want to do, but it, it, it's not. What is freedom? It's not doing whatever you want to do. It's doing what you were designed to do. And we saw the mess that that created in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve doubted God's love, questioned his wisdom, and began to take an alternate path away from God. It created all kinds of problems. Immediately, it created this spiritual alienation which created a psychological alienation within themselves and then it created a social alienation. It's created all the problems that we have currently on this planet Earth. Proverbs 14, 12, 16, 25 says, there is a way that seems right to a man but the end leads to where? Anybody? Destruction. Death, destruction. Look around in this world today. There's people taking that path. They're taking paths that they think leads to life. They're happy for a moment. It's destructive to them. You know, I couldn't figure it out. I, I just couldn't figure it out why the popcorn wouldn't pop. 
And the kernels were so soggy until my wife walked in and she goes, that's not the popcorn popper. That's the espresso machine you're trying to use there. I didn't actually do that, but I was just thinking, I mean, how ludicrous it would be to, for me to pour in my espresso machine, which, by the way, you just pour the, you, you pour the beans on the, in the top, you just push a button, and it, it, it grinds them and packs them and gives me those luscious little espresso shots early in the morning, first thing that gets my motor going. But, I mean, wouldn't it be crazy if I said, hey, let's try to use this for a popcorn machine. It's not designed for that. Lug nut, you know, come on, dude. But, but that's how we oftentimes live our life. We try to take something that's not designed for a particular thing and try to use it for, for something else. And that's, that's the idea here. It's not doing whatever you want to do. It's doing what you were designed to do. Freedom is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but it's finding the, the ones that fit our nature and liberate us. See, the fish must honor its design. It's designed for water, not for the land. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions. Next point on your notes. We were designed to know, love, and serve God supremely, and we flourish when we are faithful to that design. That's why I love the Westminster Catechism. The very first question, what is the chief end of man? It's asking the question, the most important question we all need to ask and whether you, you know, whether you know this or not, we've all asked it, whether either uh, literally or by default, we're living for something, and it's what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What, what is life about? The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And listen to me, you were created, you were made to enjoy the riches of God's glory. That's where you're going to find your deepest satisfaction. And that's, that's where you're going to thrive in life. I gave you some verses, uh, 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, talking about the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. And then, of course, I put the Ten Commandments on there too. Here's the next point. Here's the problem. All have sinned and fallen short of this design. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God has sent his son to set us free, Romans 6.26. So it says, uh, Romans 6.26 says, for the wages of sin is death. So we know what death is. Physical death is where the, the soul separates from the body. Spiritual death is where we are separated from God. Now what's crazy about this verse, it's really amazing. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, I've been teaching this stuff for 25, 30 years, and it never ceases to amaze me. What I need and what I long for the most and where I'm going to find my deepest satisfaction is given to me as a gift. He provides that for me at great cost to himself. He died God sacrificed his son for you and I. It's crazy. Oh my goodness, it's overwhelming. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And so, let me, let's, let's break down these two verses, five and six. Let me just talk about those. Keep your Bible open. So he, he kind of really sums it up, gives us really what this freedom looks like. For through the Spirit, by faith... 
So the Spirit, the Spirit of God working in our lives by faith, faith is more than agreement with facts. It's an appetite for God in the heart that's greater than any other appetite. So it's truth entering the head, igniting the heart, outworking through the hands. I mean, listen, I have people all the time say, well, yeah, I believe in God. Well, what is it that you believe in God? What is it that you believe about God? There's a difference between having a mental ascent towards God in some general way and really knowing God, having a relationship with God. That's what we're talking about as it relates to faith. So for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now that word hope is not what you might think it is. In our culture today, hope is uncertainty. I hope it, may, I hope it rains tomorrow. Well, I'm not sure if it's going to rain, but I hope it does. It's kind of I hope so. But this word for hope in the Bible is not uncertainty, but certainty. It is a powerful assurance and certainty of something. So it's not I hope so, but it's I know so. So we could say we eagerly wait for the certainty of righteousness. What is righteousness? It is a completely perfect record and right relationship with God. It's a completely perfect record and right relationship with God. So by grace through faith in Christ, we are set free from a guilty conscience. So when it says in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So all of your sins, past, present, and future, are taken care of through the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's, uh, it's free, free from a guilty conscience, but also free from the need to prove ourselves before God. We stand before him completely proven, completely perfect, because we got Jesus' record and he got our record and died on the cross for us. It's amazing. And people who aren't living in the worth and value of Christ will tend to be touchy, insecure, proud, discouraged, and weary people. See, we were meant to uh, walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the face of the creator and find all the value and the worth that we would ever need in him. But because we thought we were smarter than him and somehow he was holding out on us and we thought he maybe didn't love us, we rejected him. We rebelled against him. And we all do that by nature and by choice and that creates a spiritual alienation which creates immediately a psychological alienation. We're empty of the worth and value that, can, that comes from to us from him. And what do we do? We immediately start looking for it in our world. So one way that we do it is spirit, uh, we do it through circumcision, through uh, moral conformity, religion. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be a better person. And many churches teach a form of religion because it sounds pretty appealing. You can do this. You can do better. It becomes more of a cheer session of how much more you can do. That's called moralism. It has very little to do with the gospel. So we try to do that because it's all been done for us. Certainly it changes what we do. It changes our life. But it starts with him. It's not moralism. And then the other path is self-discovery. It's irreligion. It's, uh, so the first path is that God owes me. If I do all these things, then therefore God owes me. I've earned it. The other one, self-discovery, is that God doesn't own me. I can do my own thing. I can find greater happiness apart from him. So we try our job or relationships or money or any number of things. That's crazy to think that, but we all do it. We fall prey to the deception thinking that I'm going to find and satisfy the deepest longing of my heart through my job or a relationship or having kids or how my kids turn out or any number of things, which is crazy. I mean, you actually really think that you're going to find and satisfy the deepest longing of your heart 
from something in creation as opposed to the creator who created you? But see, that's the big lie. By the way, that's the big battle that we face every day. What's gonna take hold of your deepest loyalties and heart's affections? And we give it to any number of things other than God. And, and so that's, that's all part of that. And so, as I've said a couple times, you can't lose your salvation, you can lose your freedom. And what's fascinating about, uh, see, see, you can be rich in God's grace but live poor. We talked about that through this series. You can be rich in God's grace and yet live poor. And uh, there is no past hurt that can't be healed or addiction that can't be broken or problem that can't be overcome through the gospel. That's the freedom that we have in the gospel. Christianity gives us an identity. So when we talk about righteousness, that's what we're talking about. Christianity gives us an identity and a meaning in life that the worst suffering can't take away in all the success in this world can't give to you. It's an identity and meaning that transcends anything and everything. That's verse 5. Verse 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So my good performance doesn't make me right with God, nor does my bad performance really make me any more lost and hopeless. How many have ever had people, or maybe you've felt this before, oh my goodness, I've sinned so bad. Ah. I can't come back to God. Anybody ever, ever experienced that or have had friends that have said that? Yeah. Well, the, the, this verse is saying circumcision nor uncircumcision, religion or irreligion. My good performance doesn't make me right with God, nor does my bad performance really make me any more lost and hopeless. All stand equally lost and equally able to be saved. No one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. And notice what he says in verse 6b, the last part, but only faith working through love. That's a key phrase. Faith literally energizes love and neither moral conformity, circumcision, or or legalism and moralism, or self-discovery, uncircumcision, license, antinomianism, can do this because both are essentially selfish and insecure. So, so moralism can't produce love in you or uh, self-discovery. Uh, so we could put it, these are the two words that you're going to need to learn here. So these, there's two ways that we, we become enslaved. We, as it says, it says that we submit to the yoke of slavery. There's two and one is legalism and the other one is license. Okay, you, you got that? So log that into your mind. I've been talking about it throughout, kind of going back before between both of those. So when he says circumcision and uncircumcision, that's what he's talking about. Circumcision is, is legalism and uncircumcision is license. Kind of living however you want to live. And, uh, and neither one of those, and, that's, and all of us tend to do one or the other to try to fill that emptiness inside of us because of the fact that we're spiritually alienated from God. So if we've got spiritual alienation going on, obviously we've got immediately, we've got psychological alienation. We lack the value and the worth that we so desperately need that only can come from God. And so we're going to try to fill it up through circumcision or uncircumcision. And so if that's how we're living, that can't produce the love that he's talking about here. Because that's selfishness and insecurity. I'm trying to fill a void. I'm I'm operating at a deficit. So selfishness and insecurity cannot produce love because love is joyful self-giving. 
but faith in Christ can because by it we are certain of our righteousness and welcome with God. And the gospel makes you God-centered and other-directed because you already have your prize. You have all of the worth and the value you'll ever need in him. Now, keep that in mind because as we work through this, I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit more. Now, here's the next question. Can we lose or abuse our freedom? Yeah, I've I've said that about three times. You, You can't lose your salvation. You can lose your freedom. Yeah, so here's the first one. We lose our freedom through legalism. That's what we're talking about. I obey, therefore God accepts me. He says, stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Think chain gang. That's what he's talking about here. Verses two through four, Christ will be no advantage to you. In fact, you will be severed from Christ and will be obligated to keep the whole law. Why is he saying that? It's pretty severe. You're going to be severed from Christ? If I try to earn my salvation, I'm going to be severed from Christ? Yeah, because you can't do both. You can't earn your right standing with God. And at the same time, Take it as a, as a gift. It's either a gift or you earn it. If I said I'm going to give you a million dollars, I don't have a million dollars, but let's just say I do. I'm going to give you a million dollars and it's a gift. But then I, predic- you know, I, I make it based on the fact that, but you got to treat me nice. And then I'll give you that million dollars. Well, then it's not a gift. It's predicated up on the fact that you have to do a certain thing to receive it. And that becomes works. It's either works or it's, a great, or it's by God's grace. It's either a gift or works. Your salvation is either a gift or it's by works. And the Bible says it's by a, by a gift. And so we enter into it. That's why it says, for freedom Christ has set us free. It's a done deal. Now live that out in your life and experience all that he's done for you. So we lose our freedom through legalism. I obey, therefore God accepts me. No, God already accepts you through Jesus Christ, understand that. But we abuse our freedom through license. God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. Verse 13a, for we were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh. So Paul is continuing a thought that begins back in verse seven when he says, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And uh, he's, he's not saying that we, you know, what he's saying there is that, yeah, you should live the truth. That's really smart. Anything outside of that would be folly. Take a look at the next uh, point on your notes. So the gospel sets us free from the penalty or condemnation of sin and the power or the motivation to sin by giving us all the worth and the value in Christ we will ever need. Romans 8, 1 and 2 makes that very clear. So he sets us free from legalism and license in that we are, we are not saved by the law, but for the law. We're not saved by it, but for the law. The law is an expression of God's nature and heart, and therefore we will want to live it to please and to imitate him. That's, that's part of the gospel. In fact, we owe it to him as our creator. I mean, since he designed us and owns us and has both the wisdom to know how we are to live and the right to demand that we live a certain way, we owe it to him, but we also owe it to him as our redeemer. No one has ever loved us more than him. He gave his life for us. So we owe it to him to live for him, and we've never been more free And that's the reason why he says, that's crazy. Why would you indulge your sinful nature? 
Why would you use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature? It doesn't make sense. Now, let me give you an illustration here. Take, for instance, a lie. Let me walk you through this. See if you can follow my logic here. Take, for instance, a lie. On the one hand, gospel freedom means that I do not have to fear that God will reject me if I lie. That's gospel freedom. I've been set free from the penalty of sin. I've been set free from the penalty of that lie because God will forgive me. The person who is seeking to be perfectly honest as a way of winning God's favor will be devastated when they slip and lie. So if I'm trying to earn my right standing with God and when I lie, it's going to devastate me. It's going to create all sorts of guilt and shame upon me. But the gospel assures us the dishonesty won't condemn us. However, let's ask another question that goes much deeper. Why did I even want to lie? Why would I even want to lie? It will be because we felt that we needed what we faced losing if we told the truth. A person who must have approval, comfort, success to have joy or worth will lie to get it or to keep that functional savior. A person who knows the gospel, not just intellectually, but experientially, they, they know it in their affections, will say, I don't need this approval, this comfort or success to have joy or worth. Joy or worth. I have something much better in Christ. Therefore, I can tell the truth. See, when you understand what you have in Christ, it takes care of the, it deals with the sin. Because we all know that sin is doing what? It's, it's what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And even if I lie, it doesn't change my standing before God. But I don't want to lie because, my stand, because of my standing before God. I'm in right standing with him. And I know that when I lie, when I do something that's contrary to his word, it, it is a trampling on his love and wisdom. And it's also a trampling on his grace and holiness. So because sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. I've got some extra verses for you to write down here because I I want to elaborate on this point just just a tad more, just to give you some of the pictures that the Bible gives us. This isn't obviously an extensive list, but for instance, in Proverbs 8.13, to help us understand, uh, Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate what is evil. So when, when uh, you understand the fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God so much as, as a life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else. And so it says, man, when you have him, um, you're going to hate evil. Um, here's another verse, and so we've got to define evil, so write this down, Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug out uh, broken cisterns that hold no water. So he's he's using this kind of metaphor. He's saying what we typically do is we try to find our satisfaction in a broken cistern. We try to dig these broken wells. A broken well would be trying to find our deepest, the deepest longing of our soul satisfied in a relationship or something in creation. And in doing that, we are rejecting the fountain of living water, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that's evil. That's evil. Isn't that interesting? Anytime that we look to something in creation as being more desirable to us and more satisfying to us than the creator, the Bible says that's evil. 
And typically, it's not that we're doing bad things, we're just taking really good things and making them ultimate things in our life. And they're taking the place of God. We're gonna talk about that more in the next couple of weeks, but, uh, but here's, here's, a, here's really a good one that's helped me. It's Proverbs 26, 11 and 2 Peter 2, 22. Like a dog that returns to its what? Vomit. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Yeah. How, how, how many have ever seen their dog return to its vomit? And then your friends come over and your dog licks them in the face. <laughs> and you, you're over there going, <laughs> how sick. That's right. I've never really understood why people let their animals lick them in the face. It's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Don't even get close to me. We had a dog, Brownie. She was a brown lab and, and she would return to her vomit. That's gross. Why would she do that? I have no idea. But the Bible's saying, you do that. You do that when you, when you live outside of his directives, outside of his will for your life because you think you're smarter than God. You think that he's holding out on you. You think that he doesn't love you. You believe the lie. You're returning to your vomit. That's what he's saying. See, when you begin to understand sin more like that, man, you're beginning to be in touch. But let me tell you something. We live in a culture today that celebrates vomit. Look at that vomit over there. Let's all go dig in. Woohoo! And very few people can actually see it because they have spiritual eyes to see. Those that really understand the scripture and they go, well, that's vomit. I'm not going to eat that vomit. You guys are crazy. Why are you eating that vomit? Okay, enough of the vomit, Pastor Ray. I was, I was hungry, but not now. How does freedom change everything? How does freedom change everything? And that's really the perspective is that when you begin to see that living for him, living for his glory, that's the best way to live. And anything other than that is you, you're, you're returning to your folly. The Bible says it's just stupidity. It's outside of his wisdom. It just doesn't make any sense. And, and so it's my job to kind of help beat that down into your heart and help you to understand that. But how does freedom change everything? My beautiful bride, Nancy, and I celebrated 38 years on October the 29th, just this last, uh, last week. Thank you. Thank you. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how in the world has she put up with this guy for that many years? But I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, wow, that's a part of God's grace. And so, but you need to know this. I married her for love. And she married me for my hair. What are you laughing at? Okay, she didn't marry me for hair. She married me, she married me for money and looks. Well, actually, that's a lie, too. She didn't marry me for money because I, I don't have any, and I didn't have any. And she didn't marry for me for looks because I don't have any. I didn't have any. In fact, if anybody's changed, you know, more, it was, it's me in this marriage. In 38 years, you, you, if you look at our wedding picture, she hasn't changed hardly at all. And she's been married to like six or seven different guys, and they've all been me. In fact, I did a wedding not, not uh, a little while back. I did a wedding, and, and there were some old friends that came to the wedding, 
And we hadn't seen him for a while. And they looked at Nancy and they go, oh, Nancy, oh, you're so adorable. You haven't changed a bit. And then they looked over at me and they said, oh, oh hi, Ray. We didn't even recognize you. <laughs> and needless to say, they're no longer my friends. <laughs> but just imagine if she had certainly, you know, if she had married me for money, let's just say money, and I lost all my money, and then she left me. Fortunately, she didn't, live me, she didn't, she didn't marry me for, for looks because I even told her that. I said, you see this? Uh, I'm losing my hair, okay? And I had a full head of hair. I had blonde, long, flowing hair. <laughs> that's, that's messed up. My hair actually blew in the wind. And, uh, and, but she didn't marry me for that because she had left me after about the first year because it was all falling out really quickly. But, but if she would have left me for that or she left me for money, how do you think I would have felt? I would have felt used and unloved. Why? Because you don't feel loved by someone unless you are loved for who you are, not for what you bring to him or her. You want to be loved for who you are, not for what you're bringing into that, into that relationship. And, and the same is true with God. Let me ask you this. Did you marry God for his money? We tend to do that. See, this analogy helps us to understand the motivation of the gospel, and this is what's so freeing. By the, by the way, here's my marriage tip of the day, okay? Not that you asked for one, but here it is. Don't marry someone for something that can decrease over time like looks and money, okay? But marry them for something that increases over time like character, integrity, humility, generosity, and faithfulness. By the way, next weekend, we're gonna, next two weekends, we're going to talk about gospel transformation, gospel character. And we're going to look at that over the next couple of weeks. But let me read to you just uh, this story to kind of help elaborate on this. This is by Charles Spurgeon. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discern the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you're clearly a good, serve, a good steward of the earth. I owe a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give you it, I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. Took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. If you serve God and hope it'll save you and earn you blessing, 
you're not really doing anything for him, it's for yourself. If you give to God to get from God, you're just giving to yourself. I know this is kind of hard. You need to think deep about this. See, what he's talking about here is faith working through love or faith that energizes love, loves Christ Jesus for who he is, not for the benefits he can bring. I'm so thankful my wife, and I believe I did the same thing. We've been challenged through the years, but she married me for me. And I married her for her. And when I begin to discover this truth as it relates to God, I don't come to him to get from him as much as I just want to be with him. That's the essence. That's the best part of the gospel message. Here's the last few points. In the gospel, Christ values us and has died for us, not for what we bring him, for we are no profit to him. We're a deficit, by the way, you know that. But because he loves us for our own sakes, in and of ourselves, that's what it says in verse five, for the hope of righteousness, verse six, faith working through love. Now listen to me, once you fill in the blank, look up here, you gotta get this. You gotta understand this. What greater worth and value could you possibly have than for the maker of the universe to love you, delight in you, give his life for you? You don't need any greater value and worth than that. When you live in the reality of that, it changes everything. It changes everything about your life. And then you begin to love him. Look at the next. To the degree we see that, I think there needs to be a comma maybe there. To the degree we see that is to the degree we will love him for his own sake in and of himself. We serve God not for what he brings us, for we already have everything guaranteed through Jesus Christ, he's given us everything we need through Jesus Christ, but for who he is and what he has done for us. And so finally, this is the freedom we have needed more than anything. Finally, we can love God for who he is. Also now we can serve others, not for what they bring us, but for who they are in themselves. That's why legalism and, and license, it's, it's selfish and insecure. Those are the two paths we typically take away from God. Both of them, verses 7 through 12, hinders our relationship with God. And then verses 13 through 15 hinders our relationship with others. Last point, the more joy we have in our gracious salvation, verse 5, the more we are compelled by love and gratitude to do good for the pure beauty of good, for the pure delight in God, and for the pure love of others. This is how we're going to end this.